This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello. On this week's episode of Snacky Tunes, we have Ariel R.C. and her dad, Billy, to talk about Air Champagne Parlor and Tokyo Record Bar. We learn how Billy's legendary food parties inspired the decor and inspiration behind Ariel and her rise on desire to make champagne more accessible. On the second half of the show, we have Ben Shurkin live, who talks about going on Berlin and the trials and tribulations of being both a student and a musician this week on Snacky Tunes. We talk about food. About music with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. That was just Ben Shirkin, who will be in studio live today playing some tunes for us. We have a very special all-in-house, all-family episode today. I want to welcome Ariel RC and her dad, Billy, to the show. Welcome. Hello. Hey. <laughs> Uh, let's start back in Hell Kitchen. You are a native New Yorker. I am. And Bill, where are you from? New Orleans. Oh, really? Where yes. in New Orleans? All over. <laughs> <laughs> Any particular? No, district? actually, I grew up across the lake from New Orleans, a little town called Bayou Lacombe. Mm. And uh, I always say I'm from New Orleans because nobody knows where Bayou Lacombe is, but they know where New Orleans is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've my uh, girlfriend is from Lafayette. Oh no way! Yeah. So <laughs> I know a little bit. A little bit. Real little bit. Cajun girl? Little Cajun girl. Where uh, Where is your favorite place to eat? Or what is your favorite food from down there that only a local might know about? Well, I mean, my favorite thing is an oyster poor boy. Mm. Any particular spot? Uh, Johnny's over on uh, Royal, uh, not Royal, but uh, St. Louis. It's between Decatur and Chartist. Mm. Uh, I have not been there. I've been to Jean's. Don't know jeans. <laughs> oh, okay. We could spend all day doing this. The Parkway Bakery's great, too, over on Bayou St. John. I've been there. That's classic. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. That's a classic. Yeah. I always try to go before noon, because anything <laughs> after that is just like, can't wait like an hour and a half for a sandwich. Well, then you can also go over to Mandina's and get some great turtle soup. <laughs> okay. Mandina's. Yes. And they just spend the whole day. And then I went to get a sandwich, and four hours later, I can't go back to work. There you go. How did you end up in New York? I... Um, I was a food photographer for 30 years, and I was living in New Orleans, working in restaurants, and uh, trying to be a photographer. And uh, How did you end up in food photography specifically, especially when 30 years ago, it's definitely not what it's like today? And what was the scene like then? Well, it was mostly still life. You did still life work. And... What I did in my studio was serve people these awesome lunches. I'm a great cook, by the way. And uh, one of my assistants one day said, why are you doing this stuff when you're, when you're passionate as food? Why don't you photograph food? So I just got into it and just specialized in it. So it wasn't you know, what you see today where people are going in and shooting chefs and shooting the rest of you shot no. still life. I shot for design, packaging, advertising. Uh, anything you needed that had food in it, cookbooks. You know. My father is the Cars Cracker Box, the Whoa. Hellman's Bottle, wow. Lipton. Yeah, a lot that, of a uh, lot of bottles of things that you've seen and never thought about at the photographs. What is the most difficult food to photograph? Well, ice cream, because uh, of, just because of the timing on it. Yeah, you have to really be organized. You have to have an incredible food stylist. You have to have tons of freezers and you have to uh, be fast because you know you only have a few minutes and when we first started doing it we shot 8 by 10 film mm. so it was so slow but then when digital came it was like ice cream all day oh yeah ice cream it was great and you shot it and shot it and shot it and everything was good with the digital did you ever there was a play that my parents took me to growing up called tabletop which was about food style it was a Broadway, off-Broadway play about food stylists. I heard about that, yes. Uh, where they talked about, you know, there was a purist who would never swap things out, and then there was the young one who would be like, well, we'll put mashed potatoes to look like ice cream. Were you always purist, or did you ever have something stand in to the represent only, something else? The only time you had to have the real deal was if it was, say, for instance, we're shooting for Dove ice cream. We had to use real ice cream. But if, if ice cream was a prop, then you could use... They weren't only mashed potatoes, but uh, it was like Crisco, and you'd mm. made the food stylist knew how to put it together, and it made it look like ice cream. So it was a prop, but when it was the real deal for the advertiser, you you had to use the real thing, or you get in a lot of trouble. What is the one, or we'll we'll leave you with the best kept secret. What's like the second best kept secret to to a good food shoot? Organization <laughs> and a good food stylist. That's what it's all about. Who's, who's the best food stylist in the game? Well, back in the time when I was there, it was a woman named Mary Linda Hodgson. That woman could do anything. Mm. The best food, uh, best ice cream was Neil Adair. He's an Israeli who just came up with his technique that was like totally foolproof and perfect all the time. Like, call Neil, 
We're shooting the Hagen Dazs campaign. That's right. Get him, get him on the next flight. Yeah. No, no, he lived here in New York. Oh, so. so yeah. So how did you get to New York from New Orleans? What brought you up here? Well, originally I was, uh, I got drafted into the service in 1969 during the Vietnam War, and uh, I ended up joining the Navy and got stationed in New England. And when I got out, I went back home to New Orleans, and. Uh, I was specialized in the service in air conditioning refrigeration. So I started doing that, and it was grueling work. Mm. So one day, I just thought to myself, I can't keep doing this. Mm -hmm. So I thought about what I liked doing was photography, and I have to have the GI Bill. So I went to school and studied how to be a photographer. Then I went out on my own, and I was doing a lot of stupid stuff. And uh, one day I thought, the only way you can really get it together is go to New York. And New York at the time was the capital. I mean, L.A. had some stuff, Chicago had some stuff, but New York was where you wanted to be. And did you just do product and those campaigns, or were you? did you begin, when did you see the proliferation of what we now know for food photographers that are doing restaurants, chef profiles, et cetera? I never did any of that people work. Mm. That was... You photograph people. You did yeah. corporate work. You did portraits. I tried people a few times. What you did was when you came to New York, you was an assistant, and you tried work with a lot of different photographers. And I finally decided that still life is what I liked, and then it eventually morphed into the food work when I got my own studio. And you, once you got up here, you continued throwing some pretty legendary food parties as well. How'd you know that? <laughs> Tell me about them. <laughs> Well, it was my wife and I, she was also a photographer, very good still life photographers, did a lot of liquor and cosmetics and pharmaceuticals. And uh, at the time, uh, you'd want to entertain your clients. And we took them out to all the finest restaurants in New York. I mean, the best restaurants. But a lot of times, people knew that I could cook well, so we would plan these big dinner parties. And uh, at one time, we had a house up in Connecticut, and we'd have like parties for like 50 people, and I was, the, I was the cook, and my wife was the front person. So she would decorate and pull everything together, invite people, and we'd have these great parties. And uh, of course, Ariel was a little child then, and she was all part of it. Did, what, what role did you play? Oh, I was the entertainment. Entertainment. You weren't like uh, like from Mad Men when you like shaking cocktails or. I mean, I'm sure I knew how to open a bottle of wine by a very young age. Um, but no, I was like singing and dancing and entertaining, and then probably annoying the hell out of everybody. <laughs> what was the What was the house special? Like, what was the thing that they're like? Please make this every time. Uh, venison sausage. Ooh, like a like a nice. So, okay. You have just like a nice medicine sausage. Well, I mean, sausage is very important to the South. So it's like, what type of spices and spice blend would you well, use? Well, my sausage? brother, I mean, I'm looking at this hog on the wall here. <laughs> yeah. And my brother actually uh, shoots a lot of those wild boars mm. and he shoots a lot of deer. So he makes a lot of sausage and it's made in Louisiana. It's smoked perfectly. It is just the best sausage you ever taste in your life. And uh, he ships it up to me. So I'd always, I had so much of it, I'd put it into my parties, and people would say, oh my God, it says, where'd you get that? And uh, so we'd have it around all the time, and every party, there'd be some deer sausage in the appetizer, and uh, people loved it. So you were entertainment for the dinner parties, and you ended up going to drama school at U of M? You did. And then what brought you back to New York? Um, well, I'm from here. So after I graduated, most of the people from uh, University of Michigan were going either to Los Angeles or they were going to Chicago. Um, but I wanted to come back home. Um, I had a job. It was 2009 and nobody had jobs. And I luckily graduated with one and that gave me purpose. It was to work for Herbert Berghoff Studios on Bank Street in um, the little theater company. It's been around for about 50 years. And um, very quickly, I was just like, this is not for me. I don't really feel proactive in this industry. I went into uh, film and television doing grip and electric because I was my dad's photography uh, assistant for a really long time and really knew how to bullshit some lights and some elect electric. <laughs> you, knew the, you knew the ice cream trick. I knew the ice cream trick. I knew how to make things look nice. And 
I knew how to work really hard. So I was hired and uh, did that for quite some time. And then again, realized this just wasn't my business. And I knew how to make a drink and started bartending. And then all of a sudden, I was in the food and wine business. Yeah, you had a catering position as well over I, at the Chelsea Piers. Oh, my God. At the Sunset Terrace. It was um, about a $2 million a year catering hall venue where they did pretty much everything from frozen food and from green or purple based drinks. Mm. Um, they were making a ton of money off of garbage. And at 21 years old, I was just like, I know how we can do this better. And all of a sudden I was running it and realized what, what, what this was, is not good. <laughs> what was the, what was like the piece of advice you gave them or like a couple pieces of advice on how to do it better? That we could be buying fresh product. And because of the neighborhood that I'm born and raised in, it's actually this kind of amazing little food mecca in the middle of Manhattan. Um, between 38th and 40th Street, there is a food uh, fishmonger, there is an international market, there is a produce market, and there is a butcher that's been there for about 100 years, Esposito's. Um, and all of these people kind of raised me. This is how we would grow up and we would cook. Um, there was no grocery store in that neighborhood. So I asked if I could set sunset ter terrace up with all of those purveyors um and they agreed and all of a sudden we were getting in fresh food and no one really knew how to cook it and so i started calling my dad up and saying how do i cook these things and he was telling me over the phone and we were putting out better food than we were putting out before and it just started that way so you were there for a while and then you headed out to chicago yes which is really incredible how did you end up um working at the office hmm I asked them for a job that was not available, what? <laughs> and they gave it to me. <laughs> what was the What was the job description that you wrote? Um, I well, I had gone to Chicago because I wanted to work in cheese. Um, before I left, I was working for Max McCallman at Artisanal and was working um, in the kind of uh, aging facility that he had and doing a lot of events, wine events with him. Um, and I moved to Chicago to work in cheese, and again my wonderful path I show up to a job that I'm just like no way and uh, what was the what was the place in Chicago that's known for cheese pastoral okay right. and it's an amazing place it was just the job wasn't right for me it was like in sales and I had absolutely no clue how, what I was doing how's your gouda levels doing today my can I can I, I re-up you I, I've super seen how to I've, see, I've seen you you're very low on your brie uh, ordering can we can we get some wheels in the, in the mail for you oh yeah it was like all typing on computers and mm. that's just not me yeah. um, so I again just started bartending and it turned into me working at a couple places that I thought were really wonderful um, but I didn't really know if I was gonna have any growth potential and in Chicago chef Grant Ackett's is king and there was really nobody else that I considered working for that I was gonna learn um, as much as I could at a very young age and I applied for a job I, I couldn't even tell you what I applied for um, and on the tour of the restaurant when I was there for the job interview they showed me the office and I was like no I want to work in here and they were like well there's not really a position here and I was like no, no that's cool but like when there is this is where I want to work mm -hmm. and three days later they hired me and what was the role there so the office is a little 16 seat kind of speakeasy underneath uh, the aviary and next and it services a certain clientele, as <laughs> one might say. I've had the tartare there. It is It is delicious, delightful. yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the thing that really was amazing about it was that the person who works in that room really has to bring it. I mean, they are setting the tone for the experience. And um, you need to kind of know everything from the food selection and how we would prepare our foods, uh, which is a very fascinating philosophy, you know, working for Chef Agats. Um, But also, it has one of the largest rare spirits collections um, in Chicago, I would probably say in America. Um, and there was an incredible cocktail program and wine program, and you, as the person working in that room, are the facilitator of all of these things. You have to learn how to sell them, you have to learn how to charm people, you have to learn how to communicate. Um, and it was the first opportunity I saw where I was going to be able to develop a style of my own while under the tutelage of really incredible professionals. How do you teach charm? There's a Seinfeld episode where they ask, do you have grace? 
<laughs> you can't have grace or a little grace. You just have to have it. And unfortunately, I'm not sure if you can teach charm. Um, you can teach people tricks on how to be charming, <laughs> but I'm not sure if you can teach charm. Um, I would like to say I was born with charm. Hmm. Wouldn't, wouldn't we all? Dad? <laughs> Well, she studied drama at the University of Michigan. So, so I guess that's where you learned to pull everything <laughs> off. <laughs> and from there, you went to Pops, which is really amazing. It's the oldest family-operated champagne bar in the USA. Yeah. What was, I mean, from there and from the office, you know, what were the lessons that you took from there about the current state of champagne, why it grabbed you? Like, and why did you feel champagne out of all the different kind of places you showed up and wasn't right? Champagne grabbed you. It was an enigma. Um, I think the reason why I really love the food and beverage industry and like music and all things that are really great in the world are because of the history and the historical context of it. Um, you know, there is part of the drinking culture that is let's get drunk and let's party and let's have a great time. And if you really actually care about the things that you drink, it's about the story behind it and the people that make it. And champagne was something that was so fascinating because I knew absolutely nothing about it when I started getting excited about it. It was a treat. It was a challenge. And eventually it became a beverage that I personally got connected to by spending a lot of time in the region, by really investing myself in it. And every time I thought I knew something, I was completely wrong. Um, and it still to this day, it completely challenges me because it's an ever evolving wine region. Um, and so it was just fascinating, and nothing else had fascinated me in that way. We're going to take a quick musical break, and we're going to return and talk about your return to New York City, uh, your work with Chef Simmons, who is a dear friend of ours, we consider Thanks. a big sister, and then the opening of Ayers Champagne Parlor and Tokyo Record Bar. Here's a song from our archives, and we'll be right back on Snacky Tunes. Man, I wish there was a place that I knew I could always stay. In 2014, you returned to New York. Based on your education from Pops and The Office, what is it that you wanted to go about changing the landscape of Champagne, and what was the current landscape when you came back in New York City? Um, there really wasn't one. Um, there had been Champagne bars in B Manhattan. Bubbles or something like that? There is... Um, 
Bubble Lounge down in Tribeca, which actually Eric Ben, who owned it for 30 years, became a friend of mine, which was amazing. When he closed, he invited me to go into his cellar and pull things from his private collection that he had had there for, you know, 30 plus years. Um, there was flute. I think flute, one location of flute still exists. And then you had like the plaza, um, which still kind of to this day are the only champagne venues or places that like you go specifically for champagne. Um, there are not a lot of options when you choose to go into a niche market like champagne or sparkling wine. And I knew that the only way that I was going to be able to really kind of do something unique or special in it was by doing something on my own or by doing something in a restaurant space. I wasn't going to go work for a brand. Um, and the opportunity posed itself um, to work with Chef Sarah Simmons to open Birds and Bubbles, which was a fried chicken and champagne restaurant, which, you know, was really one of the first places in New York City that I think was just trying to challenge the highbrow, lowbrow and like be very non-pretentious and take a really incredible product and food-wise and beverage-wise and put them together in a very, you know, charming Southern style space. And um, it, it truly was serendipitous. Like, I mean, in what world do you come back to New York with this desire to do something and six months later you're building it? <laughs> with your dad. <laughs> Where did you feel the education lay with the common, not common people, but just people who are not in the inner circle? A lot of people talk about bringing new food trends in or different cultures and education is such a big part of it. Like where were people knowledge and where did you feel you had to start with birds and bubbles to get people to understand that it wasn't for a special occasion. It, it could be had in this kind of casual way. And how did you begin to craft that, that message? Um, I think my first message was celebrate the everyday which has always been something you know that I think I fundamentally believe uh has a lot to do with my upbringing clearly um I think that that's a very good message but I also think that that still makes things occasional I think it makes you um put wine in the context or champagne in the context that you're still celebrating even though you're just celebrating you know buying a new pair of pants or, you know, getting to go out with your girlfriend on a Tuesday or whatever that may be. Um, so that was kind of the first step into dealing with a product that wasn't hip, wasn't cool, wasn't trendy, was expensive, was pretentious, um, and definitely pairing it with something like fried chicken and Southern food that you don't normally see it with, um, helped us further that message. And, um, you know, champagne is a, a high acid beverage chicken is fatty high acid and fat are like a classic combination but you put it in the context of fun highbrow lowbrow new york city lower east side like there's a garden there's really fun fried chicken all of a sudden it becomes like a totally different message two years there and then you went over to riddling widow yeah how did you end up in the wine director position there what did you take with you from your lessons from birds and bubbles and how did that begin to transform into your current champagne parlor. <laughs> right. Um, well, I actually took a little jaunt into seeing if I could do sales, which I think everybody who goes <laughs> into Back the to the sales. Business, you take your Havarti lesson and bring them right over to you champagne. You know, I'm just like, guys, you know what pairs really well with champagne is cheese, <laughs> um, which clearly, again, was not for me. I am surprisingly really bad at trying to make money for myself. <laughs> Uh, which is a huge way that people are good at sales that you have to really hustle. And I just apparently was not very good at that. Um, and I was just debating what I was going to do next. I was taking a little bit of time and Robbie DeRossi who owned Riddling Widow got my phone number from a friend and was just like, I hear you're the person to talk to about champagne. I've got this little bar in Greenwich village and honestly, it's not really doing much. The guy who I opened it with is moving to California. I probably am going to close it if you don't take the position. Let's talk. And, you know, a lot I, of responsibility for a job offer. <laughs> if you don't take this, I'm shutting it down. <laughs> I was just like, I'm the type of person who says yes to everything good or bad. And I walked into this little bordello of a space. It's a I called it the shitbox for champagne. I mean, it was like red ceiling, black 
velvet wallpaper. Mm, like, class, high class. Oh my God. You want to talk about elegance? This was the place. And I don't know. I just was like, this is an opportunity. I can do something with this. And we forged a partnership and I used it as an opportunity to try out every single whim and fancy that I had from like an event perspective, from a concept perspective. What could I pair champagne with in this funny little environment and who the hell is going to show up and does anybody care? What pairing didn't work? What sticks out in your mind? Um, well, honestly, people came. They did. Um, what didn't work was selling champagne in that room. You know, there was a lot of nights I spent in there where nobody walked in. A person walked in. Like, it was a heavily foot traffic street, but you could not see us from the street. You were very weirded out that there was a champagne bar on McDougal Street. Um, People would walk in and be like, what is this place? And I'd just be like, hey. And like, you don't know me. I don't know you. You have no reason to take a risk on this very weird little underground bar. Um, and it just didn't work. But the events that I would do and the kind of relationships that I forged with wine lovers and people who were just intrigued with champagne, those people showed up for. And that kind of gave me a little bit of comfort, um, knowing that like maybe I was down, going down a path that people were interested in. When did the transformation come to the champagne parlor? Uh, when Ravi told me that he was going to sell the business. And um, he had opened, there was another place upstairs, which is where Air Champagne Parlor is now, and Tokyo Record Bar is where Riddling Widow was. Um, and just like as an aside, one of the events that we would do at, to- at where was it? Riddling Widow? At Riddling Widow um, was Tokyo Record Bar. And we would do this on Thursday nights. Um, and I would have a friend who would come in and DJ. Um, I would do Champagne Omakase, and like people would come out, and it was a party, and it was awesome. Um, so like months later when Robbie told me that he was going to sell the business, which meant Riddling Widow would close, it just started an exercise to see what it would look like for me to buy the business and to move the champagne bar upstairs. And you said you drew a lot of inspiration from your dad and mom's parties growing up. How did that get infused into the, the new space? Well, it's funny when I, we were designing the upstairs, um, my like influence is Art Deco, even though it's not truly Art Deco. Um, and I would pull these like color combinations, and I would think about like different patterns and textures and like feelings. And then I would walk into my parents' apartment, and like those details would be staring me at the face. So I think a lot of my inspiration comes from just the environment that I grew up in. But I would say that the experience at Ayers is heavily influenced by how my parents would entertain, which was just like, as my father likes to say, abundanza, (laughs) which was just all of it. Like you need to be on a little bit of a sensory overload. Um, People need to be really kind and, and hopefully like warm and welcoming. Um, You know, there should be like a a non-pretentious element to, again, this product that people have, considered to become very pretentious and I think that that has heavily influenced the environment it's a very female environment Um, not that it's only women but the people that work there are women (laughs) and so they kind of bring a lot of that charm to the table Um, naturally born charm the charm the charm's there (laughs) so um, I think you know I I feel that in my life I was very lucky and blessed to be supported by my parents who told me that I could really make anything happen if I really put my head to it. And if they hadn't shown me that it's okay to love life and celebrate life and enjoy it, I don't think I would probably be in the business, let alone doing what I'm doing at this time. Well, we want to thank you for coming by. Thank you. Where can people find you, uh, find your Instagram, make reservations, check out the Tokyo Record Bar which yeah. I don't want to talk about because people just need to experience it. Okay. So uh, all I can say, I went, it's a great experience. Go in totally naive and then we'll talk about <laughs> it afterwards. But where can people find you, find your work, etc.? You can find me at RC Cool. You can find the Champagne Parlor at Air Champagne Parlor. You can find Tokyo Record Bar at Tokyo Record Bar. We're keeping it simple for you. And you can find my father 
on my Instagram account. <laughs> We're going to take another quick musical break from the archives, and then Ben will be in studio live here at Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Ben Shirkin live in studio. How's it going? Good. Let's see. I'm Ian White. I'm the <laughs> I'm the hired gun. Oh, hey, hired gun. Hi. Bass player. <laughs> Bass player. Bass and guitar. Bass and guitar. Yeah. yeah. Ian, you were raised as a jazz guitarist. 
Yes. Ben. ben. Both of us. <laughs> Actually, though. Both of us, yeah. Let me start that we said- I'll, I'll do it again. <laughs> Sorry. Ben, you were raised as a jazz guitarist. Yeah. What is it that... In a way. In a way. Well, in what way? And also, how does that differ from just regular guitar? And why did you lean that way as a young kid? So, in high school, we actually played in the jazz band together. We went to high school together. Um, and I would say, you know, it was mostly structured as you, you're reading music, you're soloing. It's a little more free form. Um, but at the same time, there's, there's more like music theory applied to it, um, which I'm not like the biggest fan of. I, I would honestly consider Ian like way better guitarist than I am. I'm not trying to yeah, like flatter I, him. I'd agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just like f- different from the music I'm making now. I still apply like sort of the same chord structures and uh, a lot of like major sevenths and minor sevenths that like find its way into my music now because of it. How does it get brought in or where do you think that it elevates your current music to something that's like so theoretical? I mean, dance, I don't want to say it's, you're making dance music, but it's very floor to the floor, very, you know, straightforward. How does the jazz weave its way into the composition? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a good question. Um, really the structure of jazz tunes in a way are not like a pop structure where you have like verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And I think that has really like influenced my music in a way where I'm, I'm not trying to structure it like I, a pop song. Um, I'll sort of weave into like new sections after one after another and not really think about, okay, this needs to be a bridge and then a chorus is sort of like melody. It becomes important and that's like one of the most important parts and sort of vying, veering away from any sort of like normal structure in that way, that mindset. And you were born and raised in LA. Yeah. And you did a, you DJ'd a bunch of parties, house parties, yeah, clubs. That's how I started. Where <laughs> where would you DJ and how would you get in? Um so I <laughs> I used to DJ at the Roxy. Um there's like this club on top called On the Rocks. So I would do that. I had to play like seven or eight with a friend seven or eight shows with a friend there. Um it was like a, a stressful situation getting in every time because I wasn't twenty one yet. So. Did did they know that? Yeah, they they did, but they would still card me, and I couldn't bring friends through, really. Like, there was one time when I was trying to bring my friend to come see me DJ, and they were like, what year did you graduate high school? And she, like, paused for maybe 30 seconds, and I was like, wasn't it uh, 2012? And they were like, oh, okay, you can come in. Like, it was fine. But it's, it's, like, always, you have to deal with that when but, you're younger. <laughs> but even as, even as, like, a young performer, it's like, I'm the DJ, wouldn't you just show up early and just do that, or you just always get carded all the right. time no, they always like try to card you i've had situations where i've played a show and i'm of age now but we were in san francisco like two years ago and they wouldn't let me into the crowd they were just they had like a little section for for us to hang out in, and so you then, played and, and then they're like you can't go past yeah this area. and i had friends there too who were like in the in the show just like so would you like stand by the barrier and just kind of like chat yeah i was like band? hey what's up like i felt kind of weird about it be honest uh, <laughs> and what type of music would you play and, and how did that evolve from your jazz guitar training into the music that you're making now yeah so i mean i played jazz in high school i also played a lot of rock um so a lot of like the pentatonic minor pentatonic scales that i was practicing find their way into my music like when i solo on my music live like i'm usually playing like pentatonic stuff because that's what i remember i'm not really taking guitar lessons now uh i've been getting more into like synths and like evolving that side of me more um i even like recently stopped playing guitar like for the well, new music i'm making well you have like, ian that's yeah well i have ian yeah, that's my purpose <laughs> <laughs> what would ian do if you were also playing guitar if i if i wasn't playing guitar no, if you I, were playing guitar what would ian be doing ian would just be dancing oh okay. like naked probably yeah. maybe i do that already oh, okay <laughs> yeah you usually like to rehearse naked i would say yeah does it free up the creativity <laughs> yeah Freedom of body, freedom of mind, freedom of, yeah, place and time. Yeah. That's kind of a rhyme. Definitely. We also, like, live stream. (laughs) So we have, like, a cam show. And you can, like, pay. Yeah. Well, that's how you fund the project. Is it okay if we plug that? Yeah, of course. Anyone can plug anything. Okay, check out www.beshkincamshow.net. It's $5 for a sub and, like, a lot of perks. Can you add on the EP? 
Yeah, yeah. deaf. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the classic upsell. Yeah. Sometimes it's we're upsell. Yeah, playing. exactly. We're just playing our music while we dance. We're entrepreneurs. Yeah, very much so. Can we hear a song? Yeah. yeah. What so, are you gonna What are you gonna play for us first? Uh, we're gonna play the Roman Call, which is a single off of the last EP. That we play, so great. Here well, we go live on Snacky Tunes. <laughs> talk about how LA or you used LA to cultivate your identity and ideology how did that city play into the music you make now yeah so I mean LA is a super diverse city as like a lot of people know um I was really into the lo-fi hip-hop scene that was kind of going on there um a lot of like beat makers really influenced me guys like Shlomo um the low-end theory scene out there uh Daddy Kev Alpha Pup but then on the other hand, you have, yeah, you have like We Did It, which is like more electronic. And then uh, there's just so much music 
uh, out in LA. I think for me, it, it was a place to really find what I enjoyed listening to and actually meet people who were in the scene doing different things. Yeah. And what was it that shaped your, how did it begin to shape the, the dance music love and also your identity, which is really interesting? Right. Um, I would say just a lot of these guys and girls making music uh, out there were really focused on like how they looked in a way, I would say, and kind of their, their vibe, um, whether, it, like, for example, We Did It, um, which is a big influence of mine, their whole idea of we're not just a music label, we're also like a fashion uh, line and we're also making like hip hop, but it's not limited to just that. Uh, you can kind of do whatever you want. And so in that kind of way, it was a way for me to be like, I don't have to stick to one thing as a musician. Like, okay, I can make a record that sounds a little more bubbly and light and like happy. And then the next thing I do can be like sad and like the opposite and uh, it allowed me to kind of get out of that mindset that I have to keep doing the same thing in order to like maintain a, a good where crowd do you, or something. Where do you think that mindset came from? Those constraints or those personal set constraints? Right. Um, maybe like <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's a that's an interesting question. I think that something that like pushes me or like was holding me back but at the same time pushing me was like my my mom who would be like, okay, I like the electronic stuff that you're doing, but like play guitar more and like sing and do this. So in that way, I, I started playing guitar and like singing more. And at the same time, it didn't like allow me to like make, I wasn't making decisions for myself. Um, so now I'm kind of opening up a little bit more, I guess. What brought you to Brooklyn? School. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm at NYU right now. Um, so... And I was living in Manhattan. Now I'm in Brooklyn because I'm trying to be a real, like, Brooklyn knight. It was always a dream of mine to, like, live in Brooklyn. You know what I mean? It has that kind of, like, aura. <laughs> How are you balancing school and doing the music full time? Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. I'm, like, I have to do, like, homework tonight. <laughs> so, it's not I do not envy ever going back. No, to I still have no. dream. I haven't been in college in, like, 13 years. Right. And I still have nightmares about not being ready for a test. And I was like, I've been in school in years. Right. It yeah. sticks with you. Yeah, luckily, I'm, I'm, I'm studying music, so I don't have that many tests. It's more production stuff. It's stuff I like doing. Um, so I'm, I'm doing mostly music, some like philosophy. And what, what is homework in music education? What is just making music? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I wrote my new EP. Yeah, yeah. Or it'll be like, write an EP, and I'm like, I wrote an EP. So I don't know. You're like, can I, can I submit this? Can I submit this? Right. And they're like, well, no, you should do something for this class. And I'm like, okay. Okay. I'll, I'll, um, yeah. Sure, it's uh, sure, all remixes, sure. and they're just actually demos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can we hear another song? Yeah. So. What are you gonna play for us? Uh, Lightning by the Sea. Tell me what you want me to do. 
When I first reached out to you last year, you were living in Berlin. This is true. What took you out there and what were you uh, doing out there? Yeah, so I was studying abroad there um, and partying abroad there. I, I can imagine. And clubbing abroad. Take, take us through, where did you go? Taking it in. Oh my gosh. I tried to go to as many different places as I could. I mean, I went to like the main place, like Berkine and like... Classic. Tresor. So like, saw a lot of techno. I, I'm really into techno. I've actually been DJing some techno since I've been out here. Under different names. What's the name? Pseudonyms. DJ Teen Dad. DJ Teen Dad. Teen Dad or uh, DJ Sixteen and Pregnant. So if you ever see those names, no, you know it's me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what education did you get from being out in Berlin? Yeah, so it was a lot of like experiential education, um, just like pushing my limits, uh, challenging myself. Can I do also, 72 hours in Panorama Bar? Yeah, I don't know. You? Can I? I, I couldn't, <laughs> but that's just me. I love the way my voice sounds on this mic, by the way. It's really it's me soothing. I didn't know like um, Molly was a form of education. <laughs> but I learned, Ben yeah. came back and told me. So. Spiritual. I gotta try it. Yeah, you do. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I was taking some like great music classes out there, actually. I was learning a lot about like analog synthesis. Um, also, like more experimental techniques of recording like using a lot of like field recorded sounds and doing a lot more with electronic music than what i'm used to in school um learned about bitcoin i had a class on like bitcoin and like cryptocurrency and ai so a lot of future like what what the future holds um which is something that i'm really interested in and which is that's kind of the reason i like dropped my guitar i was like i'm in berlin like no one's playing guitar here like i'm just gonna make electronic sounds and like stuff that like hurts my ears like that's fun (laughs) After it was all said and done, did you see a shift in the music that you were making or, or what were some of the jumps that you felt in the creative process? Totally. I mean, I started using more synths 
first of all. Like I've been messing around with the Moog Mother a lot. Expensive habit. Good. Oh, very. I, I don't know if I'm ready to get into analog synthesis because I know I'm going to have to drop at least five grand to really like start doing it. Um, but I would love to. It's so cool. So like, it, it works your brain in a different way than I think using a computer does or using like playing an instrument. It's totally like, it's more like like I want to say like electrical engineering in a way. Do you feel the sense. Do you feel your education upbringing in jazz theory plays into the analog synths in the way that it you can write music on it? Honestly, not really, not because it's like. If you're using something like a Moog Mother, it's like one note, right? That you're like sequencing a bunch. Um, so at that point, you're kind of just using your ears to like adjust resonance and like frequencies. And uh, it's less, for me, theoretical and more like intuitive, trusting myself. So between synth education, going to class, you have a show this weekend elsewhere. Yes. Where, who are you playing with? When are you playing? Yeah, I'm playing. So the show starts at 8, goes to like 11. Um, playing with this band Blood Cultures, really cool band out here, and uh, this really cool producer Jackie Mendoza. Um, so it should be a great show. I actually just played with her out in LA, and we might start playing a few more shows together. Out here. And they let you run through the front door. Twenty one, show me your ID. Yeah, I'm fine now. No barriers. <laughs> Have a drink. Zero barrier. I mean, yeah, I've been drinking a lot. Like, it's good. It's good. I'm sure. Like, some people who are listening to this are like. Who the fuck is this? What, this kid. We were, He's I mean, just we were all. <laughs> we were all twenty-one and in Berlin once. Exactly. Yeah. Well, most of us. I hope. I so. mean, I'm twenty. I've never <laughs> been to Berlin, so. Okay. Well, you, <laughs> you, have, time. you have time. You have time. You yeah. Have time. True. True. It's what an exodus. You have to take it. You have to. You, you have to put in the. Yeah. You have to put in the time there. That's exactly. true. I want to make sure we get time for one more song. Mm -hmm. Where can people find you? Get your EP. Find out about shows. Yeah. I mean, if you use SoundCloud, go to SoundCloud. Go by Beshkin, um, or Spotify. Both are really good places to find music nowadays. I don't really use Bandcamp that much, but you can find my music on Bandcamp. If you want to pay for it, that'd be cool, but I don't really care that much. Bandcamp has been really good to artists. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. They haven't been like super good to me, Oh, but in general, you're right. In general, I'm right. <laughs> well, I want to thank uh, Billy and Ariel coming on and Ben for and Ian for coming by. Um, thanks for listening. We will be back with the all-new episode of Snacky Tunes next week. What are you going to take us out with? I'm going to take you out with a song called Secrets off my first EP. So, yeah. Secrets. Don't ruin the secret. Thanks for listening. Here we go.
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.